A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Sean Cole sitting in for Ira Glass. And our show today is about rules and when it might be okay to break them, when it's even right to break them. About a year ago, summer 2019, my friend Benjamin Walker was in Nairobi in Kenya, working on this project with some folks from the London School of Economics. And about four days into his trip, he found himself downtown, idly walking past this big, huge recreation area called Uhuru Park. And boom, there was the protesters. How many of them were there? Like 300. There's what, 300 people here? Just a mass of people, like men. And the thing they were protesting was Uber. They were Uber drivers on strike. Like I said, 2019. You might remember there were a lot of Uber strikes all over the world around this time. Uber had been in Kenya for about four years, and these drivers had the same complaint that's followed the company wherever it's gone. Uber makes too much off the rides, they make too little. They wanted more of the pie, and they were mad. Benjamin waded into the crowd of strikers with a microphone because that's what he does. He hosts a podcast you might have heard of called Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. And this story was right up his alley. He's done lots of stories about the gig economy and its discontents. This one driver, Jafar, said one thing that would get them more money is rules. More rules. It is just about regulations, number one. Number two, regulations. Number three, regulations. We need regulations from the government. Because when you are regulated, you cannot come over here, make money, go to New York Stock Exchange, Flow to your, flow to your whatever, IPO, and invest a billionaires come and take. Yeah? yeah? And when we have regulations, you will never see a driver working 18 hours a day. Are we together? How do, how do you win? That's what I want to know. How do you win? Solidarity. That was another driver there. Solidarity, Solidarity means, means everyone participating in the work stoppage. Except, from what Benjamin saw that week, there were plenty of other Uber drivers still out working. In fact... Even as they were all standing there, 300 strong, protesting against Uber. We are not straight, and there are other guys carrying passengers now. No, no. You see, there is a car here oh, carrying passengers. No. So there is like a road that goes through this part of the park. And uh, some guy, Uber driver, decided to go through the protest. Through the protest? Yeah. And they know he's an Uber driver, how? He has, like, the little Uber sign in his window yep. or something? Yep. Got it. Yep, yep, yep. And they swarm his car, and then they let the air out of the tires. That's how we're going to deal with them. Let the car stay down, huh? That's how we deal with traitors. And what did the guy do? Uh, he, was, he seemed pretty upset. Um, he kind of sat there in shock for a while. and uh, He stayed in his car. He got out. Eventually, even some of the protesters helped him move it out of the way. Of course. Yeah. He's, still our, he's still our brother, anyway. Good or bad, he's still our brother. We, we, we fight them, and we help them at the same time. Yes. This was one of two Uber drivers that tried to drive through the middle of the protest while Benjamin was there. And one of the protesters said, oh, the reason they're still driving is that with all of us on strike, the surge pricing kicked in. So the ones who keep at it make more money. Which is to say, it's hard to beat Uber at this game. 
House always wins. But then, as they all stood around discussing this, one of the drivers told Benjamin about a kind of workaround they had up their sleeve, a cheat code. So, all right, now I have a question for you. So, the last two days, I took some Ubers, I told you, you know, when I was yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm here till Thursday. I'm not going to take another Uber. <laughs> what do I, how am I going to get, a, what do I do? Just find a taxi driver at the hotel? Like, and he's like, oh, you know, you can just go Karura. Karura is, uh, is the way we, we normally call it. It's our language. Uh-huh. Karura, you know, <laughs> yeah. You get a rider, uh, you look at the estimate, you switch off the app, you go with the estimate, so which means Uber will, get, will not get the commission. So just to be clear, imagine you request a ride, and it automatically shows you how much it's going to cost. And when the driver shows up, you say to them, how about I hit cancel on the app and just give you the estimate in cash, cutting out the middleman. That is what we call Kalula. So if I was to say to a driver, I want to go Kahura, would that, is that how I would say it? Yes, yes. Uh, can you go Kalula? <laughs> yeah, if great. you go and tell the driver, we want to go, uh, can you go Kalula? You understand. Benjamin. Yes. I'm good and you? Fine, fine. Oh, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Um, Alright, so this ride, hey, where's my ride? My ride is 380, okay? Mm-hmm. I want to give you 400 and we go Karura and Karura. I cancel. Okay. Alright, cool. So I canceled it? Yep. yep. So how did it feel once you once you did that? It felt great. On the one hand, it solves all of my problems for the rest of this trip. But also, I almost feel like I've gotten the answer to my question. Because I wanted to know how you win. And there's something about going Karura, which is basically using the tools against the company. I mean, it's, it's great. And it's subversive. One of the protesters referred to it as economic sabotage, i.e., until we get more rules governing Uber, we're gonna break some. I asked Uber if I could talk to a company rep in Kenya about going Karura. A spokesperson for all of sub-Saharan Africa wrote back, saying, in part, repeat canceling by either a driver or rider could be flagged by our fraud technology, which will then result in an investigation. She also said it's not safe to go off app for the passengers or the drivers, which, for the record, some of the drivers will tell you too, that they don't like to do it because having a record of the trip is safer for them. Of course, Going under the radar like this isn't really anything that novel. Cab drivers in New York will sometimes say, hey, how about I turn off the meter and you pay me in cash? But they don't have a name for it. Benjamin and I both wondered, you know, why Karura? It's the name of a forest in Nairobi, Karura Forest. But none of the drivers Benjamin rode with could really explain it beyond that. Uh, okay, I don't know who came up with that name, huh? But, uh, and when I started calling around to drivers and transport officials in Nairobi, this funny thing happened. Karura, yeah. (laughs) That's what we call it. All of them giggled when I said it. Like, oh, that. You want to know about that? How do you know about that? And one of the drivers said, oh, you can go Karura. (laughs) Yeah, it's called Karura. (laughs) Yeah, Karura. I know know Karura. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Karura. One of them told me, before Uber came to town, those informal taxis that you haggle with... A lot of them stationed themselves around Karura Forest. So now it was a kind of catch-all phrase for paying any sort of driver under the table. That's the most rational explanation. 
But there was this other explanation that came from a driver who I'm calling Roger. Karura, yes, I think I have a clue. Eh? He's 30 years old, has a one-year-old son, been driving since Uber first came to Kenya. He's also a graphic designer, has a degree in business and IT. He's worked in the hotel industry. He's done a lot of things. Karura is a forest. Yeah. So we're assuming these are laws that we just got from the forest. So it's quote-unquote jungle, jungle law. Let me call it jungle law. You're saying jungle law? Yes, jungle law. So it's it's... It's something not allowed, and again, it's something not in the the constitution of Uber. Something not in the laws of Uber. Yes, I'm jungle law we formed ourselves. I see. So if Uber are the authorities, then Karura is sort of skirting the authorities. Yes, definitely. Got you. And how does that yeah. how does that feel when you're going Karura versus using the app? You see, it's a nice feeling. Let me say that because you're having an extra coin extra coin and you just feel like you've worked for it and you don't and nobody else deserves to get a share out of it i can say it's uh you feel empowered in terms of you feel like you're an open-minded um entrepreneur entrepreneur yeah reason being the company wants this and the client wants this so what do you do you have to open up your mind and either to, uh, to take the decision to make an extra coin or probably to listen to the company and go home empty-handed Right. It's up to you at that point. You have to make... Yes, it's up to you. ...an independent decision. Yes. But it is breaking a rule. Yes, 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 it is. I I mean, I guess I wonder if that factors into the decision-making. It's like, well, I know it's a rule. Should I break this rule? Like, we're supposed to follow rules and everything. Because, you see, at the end of the day, the reason why you get up and decide to, to get into business is... At the end of the day, you get home with something, you see. So if you decide your priority is following rules, most of the days you're going to get home empty-handed. And you know, most of us uh, are young families, you, you see, we have wives, we have kids in the house. So if you decide that you're going to be strict to the to the latter, that you're going to follow all the rules, believe you me, your family is going to sleep hungry. It's not just empowering to break the rules sometimes. Sometimes it's necessary to break the rules, or anyway it feels like it is. And today on our show, we have stories of people defying regulations, violating the social contract, to make a point, and in one case, to strike out against the inequities of a sixth grade class. Please stay with us. Act one, Time Bandit. There was a moment this year when I watched someone break the rules right in front of me in the most dramatic way. Dramatic is the operative word because it was during a performance. It wasn't just in front of me. There were hundreds of people in the audience. This was during an event that I go to every year if I can make it on New Year's Day. It's a 10-hour-long marathon of performances. I call it a marathon. At the St. Mark's Poetry Project in a 200-year-old church in Lower Manhattan. So... Imagine a soaring, cavernous sanctuary with a podium on the altar up front. Mostly, the marathon is set up as a kind of churn. There are more than 150 people on the program. And it's not just poetry readings, but bands play, and there are choreographers and comedians. I've seen Patti Smith perform there, and Philip Glass. And uh, everybody only gets two to three minutes each to read or play or whatever. The time limit's a big deal, because they need to fit everybody in. Occasionally someone gets on stage in between acts and tells everybody to keep it short. 
Anyway, the sort of rules-shattering moment that happened was not one of the famouses on stage. It was somebody I'd never heard of. Jerome Ellis is a composer, performer, and writer. His recent work... Jerome Ellis, composer and musician, but he didn't have an instrument with him or even anything to read off of. He just climbed up on stage, stood in front of the mic, and I have to admit, I was really just looking down at my program and not paying attention when he started talking. The Brazilian state of... Mato Grosso. Do Sul has a law mandating that cell phone companies offer a 50%. And then he stopped talking. Like for a while. And I think it was at this point that I looked up and saw him sort of staring, wide-eyed, maybe trembling a bit. I'm playing this in real time, by the way. Normally I'd edit these silences down, but I wanted to give you a sense of how confusing this was at first, and uncomfortable. 50%. I had no idea what was going on. So, so far he had said, the Brazilian state of Mato Grosso do Sul has a law mandating that cell phone companies offer a 50% discount to And then you can hear he's doing these kind of little breathy clicks and pops. And I was like, oh, it's some performance art thing, like cell phone companies, spotty coverage in Brazil. To their customers. With 50% discount to their customers. With... (laughs) And then he breaks into Portuguese. Put estúbios na temporalização e na fluência da fala. Customers with breaks in the timing and fluency of speech. That is, they're customers who have speech impediments, like myself. So that's what was going on. They have to... The customer has to present... Jerome has a stutter. ...a signed statement from a speech language... A significant one. ...speech language... ...speech language... ...pathologists... ...to prove their pathology. I first encountered this law in a book about strange laws from around the world. The author of the book was mocking the law. But I see in the law an attempt to address the issue of temporal accessibility 
temporal accessibility. When it comes to when it comes when it comes when it comes to disabled speech. So when I was first invited to participate in this magnificent event, I was struck by the two-minute time limit, which later became a two to three-minute time limit. And I understood intuitively that the purpose of this time limit was to create as non-hierarchical a space as possible. But in removing one hierarchy, the time limit introduces another. A time limit assumes that all people have relatively equal access to time through their speech, which is not true. Stuttering is very unpredictable. I can rehearse something as many times as I want, but I don't actually know how long it will take to say anything until I have to say it. What you just heard is about half of Jerome's performance, as he performed it that night, my commentary notwithstanding. It clocks in at about five minutes, practically twice the length permitted itself. I'll play you the second half in a bit, but in just those five minutes, I'd gone from barely paying attention to being totally rapt. Everybody was. The pauses continued, some of them longer than what you just heard. And in an enormous room packed with people, there was barely any other sound. I don't remember hearing a cough or a paper rustle. We were all just kind of spellbound. Partly, I think, because, as Jerome said himself, what was happening on stage seemed so very unpredictable. That's what it felt like in the audience. And in the weeks and months since then, I realized I just had all these questions for Jerome. The way you wish you could call up the person who made the weird, obscure movie you just saw that you can't get out of your head, or who wrote the book you just read. I just wanted to know how he thought of what he did, how it felt to do that. Jerome. Sean, hi. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. So I called him and you, how on are Skype. You? I'm He's got right. the friendliest right. face Whoops, and hadn't had a haircut in a while, like everybody. My friend Kyle. Jerome told me he got the idea after the director, director of the Poetry Project sent him an email inviting him to perform and mentioned the time limit. And just reading that gave him this twinge of stress. Um, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, I noted the stress and I was like, oh, I think it, I'm interested in going towards that stress and like exploring that. He says that confusion I felt at first, that's what he was going for. Because it's so common for people to have that feeling upon meeting him. They don't know what's going on until he tells them. It's not easy to bring hundreds of people simultaneously into an experience you live every day. But he managed it. I also wondered if he had kind of improvised what he was going to say. But he says he wrote it all out ahead of time and rehearsed it. Reading it off his phone while walking down the street which was way easier than reciting it on stage, he says. What was the shortest amount of time that it took when you were preparing, when you were rehearsing it? I would say... I would say two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes, got it. Yeah. And that was important to him, he says, to write something that someone who didn't stutter could recite within the time limit. So in that way, he was simultaneously adhering to the rules and breaking them at the same time. And since stuttering is unpredictable, Jerome says there was a chance the whole thing could have taken him only four minutes. Then it was a funny situation where stuttering less 
might have made it harder for people to understand the point he was trying to make. I figured simply being on stage would make him more likely to stutter. But Jerome says no. It's in fact quite soothing to be on stage because it's like, you know, it's like I actually feel that that I'm that I have the time. Um, and I, I, I and I and in some ways the stage the stage audience relationship is a more temporally accessible environment than other environments of verbal 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 communication that I engage with. Like when he worked at the Columbia Law Library, just to give you some background of his life offstage, Jerome worked at the circulation desk. And not only did he have to take in calls, but he had to transfer calls to other people. So answering the phone, that's one temporal expectation. And then having to explain to someone else who's calling while the first person's on hold, now he's squashed between two temporal expectations. It was stressful. Also, this show, and radio in general, is not usually an accessible environment for differently abled speakers. I'm leaving in a lot of Jerome's stutters in the interview part of this story, but I'm still cutting out some of his pauses and repeats, and mine for that matter. As a group of professionals, we're biased toward more fluid talkers. I became acutely aware of that while editing our conversation. And just to let you know, I tried to quote-unquote clean up his answers as little as possible because I want to bring you into Jerome's daily experience, too. Anyway, I think Jerome stuttered less than usual on the call with me because I know he stutters. He says it helps to disclose it, relaxes him. And then there are other subtler ways that he's able to tame it sometimes when he's talking to people. Sometimes I refer to it as my stutter, but sometimes I refer to it... as the stutter. The stutter. Because to me, stuttering is not bound to my body, that it is a phenomenon that occurs between me and whoever I'm speaking to. Like, I like to think of it like it's something that we share. And when Jerome's in a conversation with someone, he stutters partly because the burden to talk smoothly is only on him. Exactly, exactly. One way of saying it that's like, oh, he's stuttering, but there's another way that's like, there's a stutter happening, you know? And we are both contending with it. Exactly. And his talk at the Poetry Project was that on a grand scale. That's what he wanted. For each of us to shoulder a little of the weight of the stutter that was happening. The reason for those long silences on stage is something that I didn't know either. Jerome's particular kind of stutter is sometimes called a glottal block. The way he explains it, when your vocal cords are at rest, they're apart. And then when you go to talk, they come together and vibrate. But sometimes Jerome's vocal cords get stuck in the middle between being at rest and touching. So he can still make little sounds with his teeth and tongue and lips, but not his voice. And talking to him on Skype, the same thing would happen as when he was on stage. When the glottal block came, he got this look, a kind of frozen, wide-eyed stare, like he was stunned. Except on stage, it was more dramatic. His face would turn upward. And I remember thinking to myself, is that just effort? Is it fear? Yeah, and I know the look you're, you're speaking about. Yeah, it's like some stutters will, their, their body will, will in fact move a lot 
while they're studying, their face will will move in certain ways, which 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 I do sometimes. But in general, my my body response is actually is a freezing, um, and and my and I stop breathing often too, just like like it feels like everything stops for a second mm-hmm. or five seconds so longer. Um, so part of it is that is that I'm freezing. Part of it feels like my body goes into a kind of supplication or prayer almost. Um, I have a friend who who once referred to it as watching watching me ask for the word and wait, you know, and um, wait for it to come. Wait for it to come, yeah, and and yeah, because I often look up. It's a very specific state. It's like <laughs> there are some ways in which I like totally leave the room, and I, I think that speaks to the the looking upward. And I then just like I'll like I'll come back once the word arrives. And it wasn't fear, he says. He does have a lot of fears in his daily life, taking too much of someone's time, not being able to order at Shake Shack when there's a line behind him. But this wasn't that. If he was afraid of anything, it was falling back on the tactics he usually uses to get around a stutter. Synonyms, for example. Swapping out a word he's blocked on for one that's easier to say. He didn't want to do that on stage. And I, I, I didn't realize that until now, that I think that was the primary fear. And I, I did do that like two or three times, and I regretted it afterwards. Um, do you remember which words you did it on by any chance? Yes. To their customers... With so there's the Portuguese word with gistubio, <laughs> which I had literally translated to in my text. I translated it, translated it, translated it, translated it. Translated it. Translated it. To just. To disturbance. And as as you just saw, that word is, is still is is like very hard for me to say. So what I did in the performance was customers with I said breaks 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 in the timing and fluency of speech in the timing and fluency of speech. And that was one that I I didn't like that I did that. I like I what I wanted to do was what I I just did with 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 you is just wait wait for the wait word. for it. But it, it was especially especially D's. It can be really painful. Um, wow. So I so I avoided that one, and I was frustrated with myself. As soon as it happened, like like breaks to me, it doesn't capture what I wanted to capture. Are names particularly difficult? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's no synonyms for them, you know. Jerome blocks on his own name. Has since he was four years old when his stutter started. So now trying to say his name or any name, he says it's like he's four again. 
I even I even in some situations for a few years, I would say um, John. John is my middle name. But very interestingly, I then began stuttering on John. And then I and then I would start saying Sean. And because some sometimes the sh sound is easy, like like the j sound has a has a harder attack. And also, you know, obviously Sean is just an an, inc- an incredibly beautiful name. And that was really, I mean, that was my that was my main reasoning for doing. It. I was just like, well, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna choose a new name, why don't I just go straight for the top? Just you go for I mean? the top, man. So you know, and then I started stuttering on that. You know, I mean, I just find that that's so beautiful. It's like it's always outpacing me in, in a way. You find that beautiful that it's outpacing you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I find it painful too, but I, but I, I find it a deep beauty in that. Um, what is the beauty? Well, for me, it's this quality that it's like the stutter. It feels like this thing that is so deeply entwined with my body, my mind, my emotions, everything, and yet I. I can't figure it out or I can't grasp it. And, and, and even more so, like, when I think I have grasped it, like, like when I think of outsmarted it even, like, by switching my name, mm-hmm. um, there's something about just how elusive it is. The second half of Jerome's performance was just one sentence. It took him four minutes and nine seconds to get through partly because it had a name at the beginning. The Black Feminist. The sentence begins, the Black Feminist scholar Kimberly Crenshaw once wrote, and then a quote. Climbing on top of Crenshaw's name alone took him about a minute 45 seconds. I haven't paused the recording of the performance, by the way. It's still running underneath this. My chest was hurting so much. And while I was doing it, I was like, God, should I just like give up and leave, you know? And I was like, no, I mean, I've, I've done that so many, like, I mean, there's so many moments in, in life where I, where I just like, I just stop speaking because I just don't want to put in, in the labor of yeah. finishing my thought or finishing my, my sentence. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that here. I wanted to show the audience the labor that's involved. And this is labor that I often or sometimes won't put in. The black feminist scholar. But it was around this moment that the feeling in the room started to change again. There was no more confusion, obviously. And any concern or tension was gone, too. Black feminist scholar. By this point... The importance of what Jerome was saying had landed on us. And the marriage between the thing he was saying and the way he was saying it. Like a poem elongated. So it just took us a little longer to catch up. Kimberly Crenshaw once wrote. I'm going to stop the recording for a second and just read you the quote so you can sit with it during this last part. It goes, treating different things the same can generate as much an inequality as treating the same things differently. Did you feel kind of punk rock to be doing that or like badass to be like? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like like it was an act of resistance. And like, and like, I'm, 
as a musician, my the first music I studied really deeply was jazz. And I remember very distinctly when I was in middle school that I would be I would have my my jazz CDs at home and often they would be like four tracks because each track would be like nine minutes long. And then I remember like looking at my friend's CDs of of punk rock, for example, as you mentioned, and like, you know, much shorter tracks. I remember I remember noticing that that age and like thinking about what that meant. And there would be this refusal to adhere to the length of a pop song, for example, you know. And for me, there was always a racialized element there too, that, that there's like a black resistance against certain structures of time that like, no, this track is 11 minutes long. And like, if you don't want, if you want to listen to it, then don't listen to it. But like, like I'm like, like we're like our, what we're trying to achieve in this music is different in some ways than, than what a three minute song is trying to achieve. Treating, 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 treating. As a black person, I'm also thinking about the way that time and access to time is racially inflected. You know, there are there are many moments in the world when a treating a person of color is just not given as much time to, to speak. Treating a different things the same way. may generate as much inequality as treating the same things in different ways. Thank you. Jerome Ellis. To learn more about Jerome Ellis and his many projects, visit JeromeEllis.com. That's J-E-R-O-M-E-E-L-L-I-S.com. You can also follow him on Instagram. It's at Ellis Jerome. Coming up, a story that perfectly encapsulates what my father always called the golden rule. Them that's got the gold makes the rules. And it was his joke. Uh, it's in one minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Sean Cole sitting in for Ira Glass. Today's show, Made to be Broken. Stories about regulations, guidelines, proprieties that people upend for some just cause, as opposed to just cause. Act two of our show today, it's all about the Jeffersons. When he was a kid, comedian Tone Bell was a rule follower, but there was one time he got into really big trouble, broke the rules in a serious way, 
And there's a Polaroid picture commemorating the moment. In his family, it became one of those iconic photographs, sort of family lore. They just called it the Polaroid. He explained the backstory to producer Elna Baker. When Tone started sixth grade at a new school, he got Miss Dillard as his homeroom teacher. His neighbor, who were calling MP, told him, that's not the teacher you want. You want Miss Jefferson. He definitely let me know that he had the better teacher, but I, I still didn't know why. I mean, I don't know if it was because she was young and it was math, but I quickly learned, like, why you wanted Miss Jefferson. Why do you want Miss Jefferson? Miss Jefferson ran her own bank. Yeah, a bank. She was a math teacher and she gave out fake money to the kids. When you did well on your homework or tests, you'd earn what she called Jefferson Bucks, as in Miss Jefferson, not Thomas. They came in denominations of 1, 5, and 10 and were actually printed. There was definitely a Jefferson Mint. They were, they were bills. They were straight-up bills, smaller than, a, do- smaller than a, like a real dollar, bigger than Monopoly money, but it kind of had that feel of Monopoly money. And it was, I mean, it looked like, I mean, 12-year-old money. It looked like, it looked like money, you know? And, I, and I'm, I'm 99% sure her face was on it. Tone wasn't in Miss Jefferson's homeroom like MP, who'd go to her homeroom four or five times a day. But he had her once a day for math, so he got to earn Jefferson bucks, too. You could also make them for good behavior, like being quiet or helping her pass out papers. I remember seeing uh, uh, one of my classmates, like, open open a door because one of the girls had, like, stuff in her hand, and so that was, like, chivalrous. So, like, he ended up getting some money. For, I was like, oh, shit, you can open doors? I know you can just be out here <laughs> opening doors. Like, I don't know. I'm putting that on the list. Like, oh, shit, I got to open some doors now. I mean, she had to notice it. So you're doing what? Oh, you're going above and beyond. I mean, yeah, you're knocking stuff off tables. <laughs> you're, knocking, you're knocking people's books off tables and then picking them up just so she can see a good deed. And then you're looking back at it like, you see what I just did, right? At the end of the week, you could cash your Jefferson bucks in at the Jefferson Market, a little store Miss Jefferson set up at her desk. Here you could buy an extra 10 minutes at recess, as in everyone's coming inside and you're like, here's $5, I'm going to keep playing Red Rover by myself. Or you could buy school supplies, cheap plastic toys, like Little Green Army Men, and candy. All sorts of candy. This was obviously the top seller. The kids even ranked it in order of preference. So, like, you know, the Fun Dips and the Blow Pops and the and the Airheads were definitely, like, I want to say, like, the top-tier candy, maybe Skittles, uh, like the Long Jolly Ranchers. And you can, you can tell, you could tell, especially with the Jefferson Bucks, like, if you only had $2, you... This is <laughs> this is this is the drawer she opens because that's the cheap candy. That's the cheap like you don't have enough. Like this, you gotta you gotta pick from this bullshit candy. Tone loved it, but then one day, a few weeks into the school year, this thing happened that changed how Tone thought about the Jefferson Buck system, and he couldn't get it out of his head. He was sitting with MP when he noticed something. I mean, I remember him having like that plastic pencil case. That, you know, you just, you know, pencils, protractor, you know, college, you know, ruler and all this kind of all the stuff that you needed. He and he was he had so much money. He had so much money. What that bag was used for turned into a wallet. I mean, it was just wads of Jefferson bucks. I remember him taking that out and it was almost like a secret because he didn't want anybody to. But like, you know, and he threw me a couple of dollars and I saw I was like, how do you have that much money? Like it blew my mind. And then hearing, like, oh, I made $11 today. I'm like, you made $11 today? Today. It ain't even 2 o'clock yet. You got more time.
Tone had been working his ass off for weeks, and all he had was six bucks, which was a tiny fraction of what MP had. Tone was earning a minimum wage, and MP was Jeff Bezos. He had to really sit with it before he understood how this could be. MP had Miss Jefferson for homeroom and for math, which meant that he saw her four times throughout the day. Tone only saw her once, for math. Of course, MP had way more Jefferson bucks. I remember seeing it and, like, and, and being envious and being jealous and uh, wondering how I do that. And just like, let me switch my energy up. I'll study more. I'll be politer. I won't talk as class and much. Tone tried all sorts of strategies to make money. But now that he saw the flaw in the system, he couldn't unsee it. Everything was a reminder of how much more opportunity the kids in her homeroom had. It was almost like they had on fur coats and shit and, and, uh, <laughs> and driving Cadillacs. It almost felt like it made them dress better. It was like they were in the, in the Capitol and we were District 12. We we're just poor people trying to make it. And they are the elite. And, and did that make you mad? Oh, it made me so fucking mad. It, it made me so mad because you don't know, like you know the rules and you know what's supposed to work, but then it doesn't work. But you see it work for others. To Tone, having money also meant something really important to him. Impressing girls. There was one girl in particular he had a huge crush on. We'll call her Natasha. She didn't even know Tone existed, but he thought about her all the time. Man, Natasha, her name was on the back of my notebook and stuff. She was active and just long hair, brown skin, just like beautiful. And like her maturity level was was up there. I mean, her hair was always done. She always wore cool clothes and she just had the attention. And you saw the dudes who were getting her attention. And look, man, to be honest with you, they just, they had money. They had Jefferson bucks. And would boys buy girls things with the Jefferson bucks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we call that tricking off. Yeah, so you, yeah, I mean, you definitely. Tone is 12, trying to figure out the whole girl thing for the first time and desperate to impress them. Luckily, there were other ways to make money besides Miss Jefferson's class and way more ways to spend it. One of Tone's classmates explained to me that because Miss Jefferson's store was only open on Friday, the kids came up with an underground economy of their own, a black market fueled by Jefferson Bucks that was open every day of the week. You could buy anything there. If somebody had Jello or uh, uh, chocolate or their dessert, or like, hey, Maggie, three bucks for the half of your slice of pizza on Friday. I mean, somebody might sell you a pencil half price of what Miss Jefferson's going to sell it. Miss Jefferson might have been sell- selling the pencil, a graphic pencil for $2, and you might be able to get it for one. But like, and now, I mean, it's it became a, a legal tender basically throughout sixth grade. The kids did a lot of shady things, all under the table. Like kids in Miss Jefferson's class would pay kids in Miss Dillard's 10 to 20 Jefferson bucks to do their homework. That's how the black market worked if you had money. If you didn't... You got to figure out how to leverage what they need so that you can get something that you're not getting, which is the Jefferson book. I mean, there were moments where I remember if you're not paying attention to your books, you might have a textbook stolen and you're going to need five Jefferson books to get your book back. By December, the lopsidedness of Miss Jefferson's system was clear to everyone in Miss Dillard's homeroom. They complained to each other about it. And it's like, this shit is rigged. This, something is, and, and, and I don't, and I remember who it was, but I remember a lot of us being like, yo, what do we need to do? Did you ever say that to her? 
yeah, we brought it up of, of, of how to like, how do we do more if you're not seeing it? I'm trying my best. And it's like, hey, man, now we got it. We got to have a town hall. A kid brought it up one day in math class and several others, including Tone, immediately jumped on board. I wasn't able to find Miss Jefferson to get her side of this. But the way Tone remembers it, Miss Jefferson shut this discussion down. If they wanted more money, she said, they needed to try harder. Period. End of discussion. It's like, hey, man, everybody has the same opportunity. And it's like, no, they don't. Well, you got to work harder and you got to try harder. And then after, I'm, I'm saying months of doing that, nothing. Still nothing. And I just had this moment where I was like, I... I gotta, I gotta rob the Jefferson Bank. Like I'm going, I'm going. There's no other way. Again, Tone was a rule follower. His dad was really strict, so this was wildly out of character. But as Bertolt Breck said in a very different context, who's the greater criminal, the man who robs a bank, or the man who founds one? Tone figured if she can make believe a bank then he could rob that make-believe bank without any consequences. And and then so I kind of just, I mean, I guess I could just kind of started casing the, you know, Miss Jefferson's actions and, you know, I, I knew we left a window open. I knew we had, a, at this point, we had her right before lunch. Um, I knew where she kept it. I knew where the store was. I knew where the money was. So at lunch, so I decided, you know, a couple of days before, I'm going to start going to the bathroom during lunch. I, uh, I would go to the bathroom, come back, spend like a little extra time, come back, you know, for a few days, just so this wouldn't look awkward either. He's testing out how long he can be away without people noticing. Miss Jefferson's classroom is locked during lunch, but she has a window that faces the courtyard. His plan is to slip in through the window, grab some money, and head out. So I was like, okay, today's the day. I, you know, I go, I go to the bathroom, and I asked the, you know, excuse me, hey, can I go to the bathroom real quick? I don't feel well. He goes straight to Miss Jefferson's window in the courtyard pushes it open, and climbs in. His heart is racing. And then he goes over to the one place every kid knows is forbidden, his teacher's desk. He knows exactly where Miss Jefferson keeps the money, in the bottom right drawer. He opens the drawer and sees the metal cash box. It's unlocked. And so open the box up, and, uh, you know, I mean, just money. Like, I mean, it just... Even in that moment, I was like, oh, this is this was like a Scrooge McDuck moment. Like, I am swimming in Jefferson Buck. But, like, you can't get overzealous, right? Like, because if, if you take everything, that's definitely going to be noticeable. So you have to take enough to feel comfortable, but not enough to set off any alarms. And drawer opened up, popped the, popped the box, and grabbed out a nice, I mean, I mean, I'm going to say an inch thick of Jefferson Bucks. I'm going to say like an inch, like a nice, a nice one. Probably equivalent to what MP had in his in his you know in his uh in his in his pencil holder, and you know so I, I split that in half and then I stuffed my pockets, and I'm like I gotta get the fuck out of here. Tone is running out of time. He does a sweep of the room, then he exits through the classroom door and locks it behind him. I'm good, like I'm home free. So I close the door, I back out, door is locked, and I'm starting to walk around the corner and I run into Natasha like. Blew my mind. Also, I'm also like, why is she in the hallway? And I mean, she she looks at me. She knows that I'm not supposed to be out here, but also she's looking at me like, why were you in Miss Jefferson's class? And 
I mean, I swear to you, she just looks me up and down and and just notices my pockets. Cause I mean, I got dollar bills, I got Jefferson bucks. I mean, just popping out of my pockets. Oh man. And like, and she just looks me up and down and then, and she was like, Ooh, <laughs> she goes, Ooh, I'm gonna need some of that. And I'm like, oh my God, like I, this, this girl who I'm infatuated with, like one is robbing me. And, but like now I got to not get caught. I have to give this bitch hush money. So I, so I, you know, I give her like, I think I give her my whole left pocket if I'm not mistaken. I think, uh, cause it was already, already split it in half. And, you know, right before I go back to lunch, I'm like, Hey, just do not say nothing about that. Are we good? Like, I mean, just, and just like, Hey man, you know, we kind of had it cone of silence like can can we keep this shit a secret come back to Miss Dale's class by the time we start the next period I mean it's I mean everybody knows about it I heard you heard you took Jefferson Bucks I was like "Mm -mm, I didn't take any Jefferson I was at lunch with you the whole time I went to the bathroom that's about it so you starting to see the eyeballs come at you like oh man too many people know within no time word spreads to Miss Jefferson and then the principal or vice principal. Tone can't remember which. And they pull me into the hallway. Miss Dillard comes out. They're like, what were you doing lunch? And I was like, oh, I went to the bathroom. I asked for permission. And they're like, so you didn't go anywhere else? And I was like, nope. I just uh, went and then I, and I came back. And they're like, okay, so so what's in, what's in your pockets? And I was like, nothing. And then- It's still in your pocket? I didn't have time to put it up. Oh, you are the worst criminal. I, <laughs> I have time to. I couldn't. My plan was getting foiled in front of my in front of my eyes because I had too many eyeballs on me to take it out of my pocket. There's nothing I could do. It's like, it's, I felt like I was wearing a wire, and people knew about it. Even with the money as evidence, Tone still won't confess. So they turn up the heat. Into the hallway walks Natasha. Yeah, she comes out and she's like, "Well, I saw him coming out of Miss Jefferson's room," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> I mean, like. It was it was unreal. Like I paid. That's why I gave you the money not to talk. Like especially to these people. That's that's why I gave it to you. Like if if you was gonna tell the whole time, I would have just taken the whole, kept all of it. Like if it, if this was how it was gonna end, like that's what the money was for. And I go to the office, and it's our uh, it's either our principal or vice principal, but it's definitely Miss Jefferson. And did she ask you anything? She she was definitely disappointed. She was definitely disappointed. And then, you know, she's, you know, the why why would you do that? And, you know, and I was real. And I was like, look, man, it wasn't to be malicious. It was like, we struggling out here. I'm sick of seeing people with three chocolate milks and five blow pops and ring pops and all this kind of shit. And I can't do nothing. And it's like, well, there's a better way to go about it. I tried that. And you can't tell me that you don't remember we 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 kind of all talked about it. And I've tried everything. I've tried what you said to do. I've tried to make better grades. I've tried to be more chivalrous. I've tried to not get my name on the board. I've tried all these things and they don't work. I've tried to be fair and you're not being fair. Tone's punishment, the worst possible outcome. They call his dad. In Tone's mind, this is his last day on Earth. He gets home, goes straight to the fridge, gets a bowl of ice cream, and heads to his room to watch porn. He figures he might as well go out with a bang. He's refilling his bowl when he notices something. 
there's a chair in the middle of the kitchen. His dad walks in, gestures to the chair, and says, Oh, no, 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 no. Nope. You know what time it is. And like I'm like, fuck. You know, I got to bend over the back of this chair, and I'm just taking it. And uh, I mean, I'm just breaking down. And then, <laughs> and then my father just like, he stops, I'm crying and everything. And then he goes, hey, Tom. And I look back and my father uh, takes a Polaroid of me crying with the face. I mean, like it's pants around my ankles, ass just, I mean, cr- faces like, I've, I mean, took a Polaroid. And what was the expression on your face? The expression? Um, pain and defeat. Tone never got another spanking. He never went rogue again. And part of that has to do with the Polaroid. Anytime he started acting up, his dad would remind him of that photo, and Tone would course correct. And I mean, it was like Pavlovian. It was like, I mean, that photo made me break down. Tone was ashamed. He felt bad for robbing the bank. But the thing is, it actually got him what he wanted. Not like he expected. He didn't get Jefferson bucks, but he got justice. Miss Jefferson changed the rules. No matter how many times a day you saw her, you could only earn money during the hour of math class. It became a level playing field. I feel like I do remember people, you know, kind of being disappointed. <laughs> there was people in Miss Jefferson's class that were pissed, I'm sure. But everybody who wasn't in Miss Jefferson's class was like, yo, about time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know what's interesting about what you're saying right now is just, like, the kids in Miss Jefferson's class are going to be pissed at you because they don't have the privilege they used to have, right? But they also have no concept of how you've been feeling all school year. Exactly. And, and like, and that's exactly. You don't know it's different for me. Well, I'm in her class, and you get to take her class. Isn't that the same? No. I know it should be, but it's not. That doesn't matter to me. Well, then I have to do something. It felt unfair. For Tone, this was always just a funny story he told about his dad's awkward Polaroid. But he started talking to me about it a few weeks ago, during the height of the recent protests. And that made him think about the story differently. There's a parallel that I've, that I've never noticed, or, or looked for, I guess, between how communities react when they don't feel like they're being treated fairly. Well, you know, it's, it's what it makes me think of is like, uh, Jesus always talked in parables. Right. And I feel like your Jefferson Buck story is such a perfect parable. I, d- I agree. When the rules are the same for everyone, and some people thrive and some people don't, but everyone's following them, why is it not equal? Why is it not fair? And I don't even know if it's can be answered most of the time. But... The question has to be asked. If this is a parable, almost everything lines up. The systematic inequality, the unfairness, how sometimes you have to break the rules in order for them to change. I see what I'm supposed to learn from everyone. But the one thing neither of us could figure out is, what are we supposed to learn from Natasha? Tone never told anyone she took half the money. A crush is a crush. So the real robber actually got away with it.
Elna Baker is one of the producers on our show. Tone Bell performed a version of this story on the Comedy Central program This Is Not Happening. His first hour-long special, Can't Cancel This, is now available on Showtime and Amazon Prime. Our program is produced by Aviva de Kornfeld and me. People who made the show today include Bim Adewunmi, Elna Baker, Emmanuel Berry, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivas, Nor Gill, Damian Grafe, Seth Lind, Mickey Meek, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Robin Simeon, Alyssa Ship, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Swatala, and Matt Tierney. Our managing editors are Diane Wu and Sarah Abdurrahman. Executive editors, David Kestenbaum. Special thanks to Gianluca Yazzolino, Michael Kamani, Joseph Nderitu, Wycliffe Alutalala, Ada Peralta, Monique Thompson, Kyle Dekuyan, Nicole Wallace, Dipali Gupta, Patricia Spears-Jones, Laurel Chur, and all of the Uber drivers who agreed to talk with Benjamin Walker and me. Please check out the episode that Benjamin did called Going Carrera on his podcast, Theory of Everything. You can find it at theoryofeverythingpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Original music at the end of Act One was composed for us by Nicholas Payton. Our website is thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, of course, to my boss, Ira Glass, a man who still goes trick-or-treating on Halloween. Except now when he gets his treat, he still toilet papers the family's house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we call that tricking off. I'm Sean Cole. Join us next week for more stories of This American Life. This American Life.